Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. large in the popular conception of history in the West that it's hard to imagine a world without it. It wasn't born fully formed, though. Like any other entity, it had to take some shaky baby steps before it really found its footing. Rome's coming of age came at the expense of Carthage, another Mediterranean republic that, until the mid-3rd century BCE, was a strong contender for greatest power in the region. Their clash would do much to temper the Romans into the world power we think of, and bring down an ancient civilization in the process. Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, actually, uh, the Punic Wars. Well, I'm excited for you. Excellent. There's <laughs> actually one other special thing about this topic, which is more special for me than, than uh, really anyone listening, which is how you're supposed to do these things, right? When you're making a podcast. Amazing. Incredibly self-serving. Enthusiast. This episode will actually be going up on, I believe it's the fourth anniversary of this show going out. What? Um, Which is very exciting. Yay. Um, I'm very happy about that. Congratulations. There is an unreleased episode of HI 101. And just to cut everybody off, it's never going to be released. It is awful. (laughs) Um, But when I was working on the show initially... Uh, I had one of my very regular guests come in and just sort of off the cuff recorded a proto HI 101 episode. And basically we went, what topic can I bloviate about for however long without actually doing any research yeah, and, without stopping to breathe <laughs> and well but without actually doing any work to like get yeah, the yeah. notes in, in order before I did it. And this is the topic that I picked. Oh, okay. Now again, it is awful. We won't be hearing it. So this is take two. <laughs> this is take two of the Punic Wars. So I'm I'm finally going back and writing the terrible, terrible wrong I did with that episode, <laughs> which was merely for like testing purposes. Yeah, um, it's a good karmic reward for you. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, I, I I don't think it means anything to to anybody else, but it means a lot to me to be coming back to this one. So, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, let's get started. Absolutely. What the heck are the Punic Wars? That's an excellent question, Adam. <laughs> Um, The Punic Wars are a a series of uh, wars that took place between Rome and uh, the city-state of Carthage uh, in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE. And the reason we're going to be talking about them is specifically, when we start out this story, Rome is kind of... It's a regional power. It's really not the powerhouse that we kind of think of when it comes to like Republican or even Imperial Rome. Mm -hmm. And by the time we're done in, you know, a little over 100 years, 
it's going to be kind of the the Rome we think of when we're thinking of the Rome under Julius Caesar and and all of them. Not not quite, but it's it's definitely on that trajectory. Just puts it on the map. <laughs> yeah, definitely. As I said, mid third century BCE, you know, we're kind of talking the two seventies, two sixties kind of thing here. Mm-hmm. Rome had more or less just finished consolidating power over just the Italian peninsula. Okay. So they are, they are entirely contained in that tiny little region. It's adorable, really. A little bit. They're, they're kind of... I don't want to say they're not notable, but they're not... Not more notable than any other individual, like country right <laughs> yeah they're, they're not exactly outstanding either there are a lot of other potential roams out there at oh, this point in time there are there are lots of other regional powers uh macedonia comes to not, to mind for example and and yeah, there's there's plenty of others so even within the context of a state it's not like super notable or permanent no not particularly i mean it's been around for a long time at this point in mm-hmm. time but so have a lot of other city states throughout the past five or six hundred years at this point in time there have been greek colonies and 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 other colonies popping up across the mediterranean and for a relatively powerful city state to come up is not unusual Mm -hmm. at all what is mildly unusual about the romans is that they've managed to consolidate as much as that entire peninsula so they've taken over a number of their neighbors in the in the process so um there were um there were a people called the latins where you get the latin uh uh language from that were taken over by the romans uh during the the lead up to this period in time but again that's a very small region mm-hmm. other than that the main thing that was different about rome was their focus on military tradition and military power in their society but it's wrapped up in a in a kind of a different way than we normally think of um when we think of the roman army we're okay. not talking about a, a professional standing army which is kind of what they're they're going to be notable for later on in their history, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What we're talking about here is a tradition of the nobility having a very active role in the army. So it is expected of you if you hold any sort of position of privilege whatsoever that you are going to serve very actively in the war. And if you come from a noble family, your first, you know, 20, 25 years of adulthood are going to be constantly spent going to war. Um, your, noble duty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what's more, it's um, your your rank as a noble person in some ways ties directly to how fully you can participate in the military. Oh, okay. So the more armor and arms you can afford to buy and maintain, mm-hmm. the higher class you tend to be. Well, that makes a sense. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's partially wealth, but it's also about your level of participation in the military. So if you are, you know, the highest echelon of, of military nobility, the, the equite, right. it's actually named after your ability to own and uh, maintain a horse and the, the oh, full okay. set of armor and spear and everything that go along with participating in the cavalry and maintaining your horse ownership <laughs> yeah well i mean horses are expensive yeah, for sure uh, but but if you own that horse you're expected to ride it in battle right if you're a little bit less uh, uh wealthy you're expected to serve as as a uh, foot soldier mm-hmm. uh, infantry and the level again of, of weaponry and armor that you can afford um dictates both your place in like the placement of a battle but also your place in society other places just kind of you know, basically whichever peasants are lying around, they give them a sharp stick and tell them to go to town. (laughs) Anyone can use a spear, sort of. Then we, we need to talk a little bit about Carthage. And Carthage is really interesting to me specifically because if you took somebody, you know, plucked them from the year 
280 BCE and ask them, you know, in 200 years, there is going to be uh, an existing country that's going to rule over the entire Mediterranean. Who is it going to be? They would put everything they owned on Carthage. Okay. It's a big dog. Very much so. Carthage is one of those civilizations though that doesn't really get talked about that much well wow. um i mean yeah you you hear about it but it's not it's not it doesn't take the place of rome that's for sure and no, it doesn't even take the place well, of history makes rules of us all yeah it doesn't even take the place of something like greece for example which at this point in time is is on a vast decline right I mean, right uh Alexander the Great has already rolled through the, you know, remains of the the Greek city-state alliances and there's not a whole lot left in his in his uh, aftermath. So mm-hmm. Carthage is this city-state originally um founded by uh the Phoenicians. Okay. Um they were they were Canaanites. They were they were from um the the Levant, the from Israel. And um this is a people that comes up in the Bible and stuff like right. it's, it's a very old people. And they, they found Carthage, uh, around 900 BCE. Okay. And you know, the independent Carthage grew up basically on the back of trade throughout the Mediterranean. One thing we're going to have to really keep in mind as we talk through this topic is that for these ancient people, the, the literal meaning of the word Mediterranean, like the middle of the world mm-hmm. is, is very true. And when we tend to think about geography now, there seems to be like a a fairly wide mental gap between Africa and Europe. Okay. Yeah. That does not exist no. in this story. These are all places that are on the rim of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Equally and, important. Oh, very much so. Yeah. In fact, for, for a lot of the story, Africa is far more important. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Carthage is located very close to the modern city of Tunis in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. So on the on the northern coast of Africa. And this is an area where, you know, if you go a few hundred miles south, you definitely run into like full on Sahara desert. Right. But along the coast of the Mediterranean, it's a Mediterranean climate. It is just yeah, like you would beautiful find farmland. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite fertile, but it's just like you would find in Greece or in Rome. That's kind of that rocky, somewhat fertile land that you can kind of make a living from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not exactly Ukraine or anything like no, that. No. <laughs> but, you know. It's, it's not all desert either. No. Carthage was also actually a republic, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, it's more of an oligarchic uh, republic. So you have like, just like Rome, actually, a, a very small population of people from whom uh, the ruling class are being pulled. So you have elected senators, but they're being pulled from like a very small class of very wealthy people. Right. Um, again, not that different from Rome, really, which we tend to talk about in that way as being very exceptional for not being a, a monarchy. And they weren't the only ones. Carthage had this going on, too. Carthage's big uh, distinguishing factor, though, is they were shipbuilders. They built a lot of ships. They were very good at it. Sure. Um, I should mention, by the way, the name Punic Wars trips a lot of people up. It comes from the Latin word for Phoenician, um, uh, Punicus or Poenicus from uh, Phoenicia. So it's kind of a Roman term for the Carthaginians that kind of... (laughs) speaks more to their background than it does to their their current funny status. how that happens huh yeah yeah <laughs> see if you can guess who's gonna win this battle yeah exactly <laughs> um these ships though they they trade they conducted trade throughout the mediterranean and basically if you control the mediterranean at this point in time you are basically by default a very wealthy nation wealthy beyond avarice <laughs> the mediterranean is unique in that has very very uh low tidal activity and you can 
run boats across it very easily that you couldn't necessarily run across the uh, the ocean and so for these big lumbering trade vessels it makes it very convenient to move goods i've heard this yeah it's like it's sailing on easy mode <laughs> pretty much it also makes it kind of easy to get by without really needing ships that much um but kind of the nature of the the coast of the mediterranean means that you need ships to conduct trade it's uh there's a lot of very kind of well i mean if you look at the coastline of greece for example or, or of italy mm-hmm. you have a lot of places that are hard to get to without boats and very easy to get to with boats right. so yeah. um controlling that trade very very wealthy if you were an upcoming um uh, you know, young person in in Carthage and you were looking for gainful employment, the Navy is absolutely somewhere that you would look uh, in the same way that in in other places you might look to the Army. Okay. Uh, It provided decent pay, a steady job. There was always going to be be work for you. A roof and a meal. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But the Carthaginians actually weren't that focused on military. Um, and, And that's going to be one of their biggest distinguishing factors from the Romans in this period. Generally, when there needed to be some fighting done, they would turn to uh, mercenary groups. And they were just so wealthy that hiring professional mercenaries was a better value proposition than keeping citizens trained as soldiers. Is this from their own citizens at this point? So when the Phoenicians settle um, in you know, along the coast of uh, of North Africa, mm-hmm. they displaced the local uh, Numidian population. Okay. Um, but they didn't, like, annihilate them. They were still there. And sure. <laughs> uh, the Numidians uh, tended to do quite a bit of mercenary work for the Carthaginians. Um, the Carthaginians always paid well. And, uh, you know, there was always this kind of undercurrent of if Carthage ever slipped up, the Numidians would be ready to kind of come after them. Yeah, they'd be right there, huh? <laughs> It's a dangerous game that they're playing, but again, they were wealthy enough to keep the right people paid off. So over the previous centuries, Carthage had grown beyond just what would now be Tunisia to cover basically the entire North African coast of the Mediterranean. Oh, wow. So they stretched basically from the Nile Delta to the Atlantic. They had that entire coast. Egypt was still incredibly powerful in this time period. Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, Egyptian coastline that isn't theirs, but... Yeah, it's they, not nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they they were aware of. I, I mean, the 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 physical distance between North Africa and uh, the coast of Spain is incredibly small, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and they were they were active in the very south of Spain uh, to a small extent. They were they were quite aware of um, the Iberian Peninsula, mm-hmm. but it's not as though they were incredibly populated over that entire coastline. But they did control the entire thing, and with it, all these kind of native populations that were in the same area. Let's talk about Sicily. Sure. When you look at a map, Sicily is very, very close to Italy. Like the gap between the Italian peninsula and and the island of Sicily is is quite small. Mm -hmm. It's also pretty close to Africa. It's a little bit farther, but the distance between Tunisia and Sicily is pretty small. Sicily is kind of an interesting place historically because some of its geographic features have made it a very central player in a number of very interesting uh historical episodes because of its striking distance (laughs) not only its striking distance but also sicily is a very like volcanic island oh so it's super defensible (laughs) not only that it's super fertile Fertile, yeah. yeah so a lot of different places have used sicily as 
for all intents and purposes, the breadbasket of their empires. Olives grow very well there. Yep. Grapes grow very well there. Mm-hmm. Wheat grows very well there. Wow. You have yep. all the staples of a Mediterranean <laughs> diet right That's all there. You need. <laughs> and um, in, in a number of cases, it's become a, a contested territory between various players who wanted all of those things. It's extremely valuable. Sure. When we kind of start this whole thing off, 260s or so, the island of Sicily was mainly, I mean, it, it was controlled by a number of uh, old Greek um, colony city-states. The way the Greeks had done colonies was basically when they either wanted to uh, trade with populations that were far away or when they got enough people that they didn't want around anymore, Mm -hmm. they would found these new uh, colonies throughout the Mediterranean and they would keep kind of a a special relationship with the founding city. So you'd be an independent city, but you would very much be aware of the fact that, you know, we are descended from Athenians and we have a special purposes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and, and they have a, a certain amount of say in, um, you know, diplomatic decisions and things like that. But as the Greek empire, and I'm using the term Greek empire as though it's a cohesive thing, it's absolutely (laughs) not. But as as the Greek city states in general decline, those, uh, relationships became weaker and weaker to the point that these city states, uh, became basically independent. There was no need to keep checking back. They were well-established. Um, the city of Syracuse was the main one in uh, in Sicily. It's on the uh, it's on the east coast, kind of closest to to Italy, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the only one. There's a couple of other um, major cities. One of them being Messina. And in 270 BCE, uh, a small conflict breaks out. It's uh, it's between uh, King uh, Hiero II of Syracuse and a group known as the Mamertines. And these were a group of, of mercenaries who had managed to capture and like take over the city of Messina. Oh, wow. Um, it was kind of a, there, there was a, there was a military operation gone bad. Some mercenaries decided, you know what? We don't want to get paid. We've got a city now. And <laughs> the whole thing was very embarrassing for everyone Sounds involved. Like- <laughs> Except for the Mamertines. They oh, were sort of large. Hey, not bad. <laughs> they had an entire city at their disposal. They were they were very happy about it. <laughs> for a while, I'm sure. <laughs> now, the uh you know, Hiero Syracuse goes this can't stand. You can't just have marauding <laughs> raiders owning cities. Well, we've, the uppity raiders yeah. they'll come from my city next. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's the real concern yeah. here, right? Um and he went to war against uh against the Mamertines, which is Super understandable. Mm -hmm. Now, they managed to defeat them in sort of pitched battle outside the city, Um, but they they fell back and Hiro managed to put them under siege. The Mamertines pulled a very interesting move, which is they appealed to both Rome and Carthage for help. Oh. Rome and Carthage had actually worked together in in a couple of instances of of sort of mutual enemies in the past, Mm -hmm. but Carthage had definitely been eyeing sicilian property for a very long time like a juicy peach <laughs> and rome had just finished uh kind of consolidating the uh the italian peninsula basically as far north as the po river so not quite all the way up to the uh the alps yet okay but pretty far up the you know the boot they're looking for their next move sure basically rome in this story is going to have a very like 
almost Klingon style sense of honor in a Perfect. lot of this stuff. That's the touchstone I needed. <laughs> and also that very Klingon sense of we can abandon this whenever it's convenient for us. <laughs> yeah, it's the sense of honor, but also the sense of eh, just blow it up. <laughs> Pretty much. There's going to be significant debate in uh, the Roman Assembly, which is where the decision to go to war happens about whether they feel that it's right to be aiding a bunch of rogue mercenaries, mm -hmm. especially against the, uh, especially against Syracuse, who they have, you know, something of a relationship Good relationship with. with yeah. Um, it's a, it's a complicated relationship, but it's still a relationship. And which one of these do we want to support is legitimate. Yeah. Oh, I see. While they're debating over whether or not to do anything here, Carthage goes, you know what? Sure. Yeah, we'll do this. We'll help you guys out. Mm -hmm. And they send uh, a supporting army to uh, Messina, uh, manage to break up the siege, uh, get um, the get the city kind of back to where it needed to be. And this is, uh, once again, paid mercenaries. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's it's under direct. Uh, Carthaginian control okay. and they have much better control over these ones. <laughs> just just making sure it seems like a... Generally what they would do is if they're going to war from like a state perspective, they're going to be sending Carthaginian commanders. I see. Uh, leading usually Numidian troops. Now Rome, seeing the Carthaginians moving in, are not terribly happy about this because they don't really want Carthage on their doorstep. No. And they don't really want Carthage uh, taking up precious farmland that they could have well they were still thinking about it themselves <laughs> and they said hey messina we could help you out too if you want <laughs> we could come help too and the mamertines are kind of like okay we got we, we were only expecting one we didn't think this is going to happen right this is not great <laughs> this is not what we were looking for rome rome is interesting in in stuff like this because when they commit they fully commit if there is a war on yeah. they keep going until they win or until they cannot themselves destroyed <laughs> and at this point in roman history they've just never lost anything yeah, things have been going well so far <laughs> they are so committed to this that they have individual citizens very wealthy citizens willing to bankroll this expedition oh, wow. to sicily they are paying out of their own pockets it's not just state funds this is privately sponsored <laughs> yeah wow the maritines know uh, a thing or two about how mercenaries think they also know about Rome's military um, reputation and they go, you know what? We actually want the Roman help more than the Carthaginian help. Yeah, no kidding. So guys, we're good actually. Thanks so much for coming out. Really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to go with the other guys. Um, Thank you for your interest in this position. <laughs> the Romans route the uh the syracusan uh uh army that was in the field outside the city and then actually turn against syracuse because they've decided if we're going to do this thing we're going to do it All right away. <laughs> we're going to have people beholden to us in messina mm -hmm. uh we're going to take syracuse now there's no more problems with people kind of getting in our way with uh with sicily yeah now it's all roman mm -hmm. um syracuse is not necessarily ready for rome they overextended during the battle with uh, with Messina. They weren't expecting uh, a very large uh, force coming in from Rome, and uh, it just didn't have the the resources to commit. Again, Rome. Yeah. When it goes, <laughs> it goes hard. Carthage was upset enough about this whole uh, turn of events 
they still had an army in Sicily. Rome was there now. This was the impetus for uh, declaration of war. Um, Again, we're talking 264 BCE. And this is what's going to be known as the First Punic War. Okay. Rome does very, very well in land battles. Uh, They had a pretty for the time advanced system of fighting uh battles okay um based actually on this hierarchy of nobility that mm-hmm. they brought into play generally the way battles are fought in this era um is that they're generally fairly low uh casualty okay you, you the two commanders get their armies lined up on a battlefield it's mm-hmm. generally very flat Super very formal open. <laughs> Yep, very formal. Uh, the orders are given to fight, and you just have this giant line of people locked together. Smash into another line of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole, the, the main goal of a battle is to break through the other guy's lines or get on the other, like the, the outside of the each other's lines. Yeah. So you have this line of guys, then you put your cavalry on either side to protect your flanks. Mm-hmm. The cavalry duke it out on either side of the lines, yeah. and then the guys in the middle try and force their way through the middle flank of the others. Flank them before they flank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, generally, these battles are won or lost, though, by breaking through that line in the middle. Mm-hmm. And once the line breaks, everyone turns and runs. It's chaos, yeah. It's called a route. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you route, you've won the battle. Generally, it's seen as very, very poor form to go run down a bunch of routing soldiers it happens occasionally but for the most part once the army turns and runs that's it you've won everyone recognizes everyone it knows as a win. It. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's <And> no deny <laughs> so there's a certain for- formality to all of this where everyone knows how this goes everyone knows the rules and plays by them for the most part but then <laughs> well we're not, we're not quite at that point of this war <laughs> okay what the Romans did a little bit differently than others was um, they had essentially, not, not quite, but they had essentially three classes of soldiers. Okay. They had the Hastati, who were lightly armed, like they had armor and a, a short sword, um, but they're not like wearing full helmets and everything. They would be at the front of the line to start the battle. They're the ones who started out. And they would fight until they got really tired mm-hmm. and they would tire out the other guys and as soon as they got too tired to get to go on the commander would give a, 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 a command and the next type of soldier would uh, move up through the ranks the, okay. the hastati would fall back and uh, next up is the princeps and these are closer to what you would normally think of as roman legions like full like mm-hmm. helmet uh body armor body armor chest plates <laughs> um you know Cavalier. the, the <laughs> advanced night vision goggles uh no 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 but they would have the you know the gladius type swords okay and they would move up the enemy would have these like completely tired out again very informal soldiers who are usually drawn up from very low class citizens oh i see they're they're very tired and the princeps would come in and they would make mincemeat of them Mm -hmm. usually that would be enough to break through if they still managed to hold the line and the princeps started getting tired. There's this third class called the triarii. And once the triarii came up, like that was it. <laughs> that was it. Like there's, there was like a very common Roman saying, like falling back to the triarii is like a last ditch effort. That's going to work. Yeah. Basically. Um, the hell Mary. <laughs> y- yes. With a very high percentage <laughs> chance of success without the, without the, without, without the, the, the implication that the hail Mary is going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a Hail Mary that 
has cheat codes associated so, 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 with yeah, it. Yeah, so I guess trump card is the phrase. That would be a lot closer, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because there's no question about whether the Triarii would succeed or not. Generally, they were um, older uh, warriors, more experienced warriors who had been princeps for long enough that basically they just hung around at the back of the battle to see if they even had to fight. Yeah. And <laughs> if they did, patio furniture just if, waiting. <laughs> if they did, they just roll over everything. Because I'm picturing these super rich elites are like, maybe we'll have to fight when we do. It'll be easy. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of the whole thing is you you get all this experience when you're young, right? Yeah. And you're you're making your bones uh, uh, militarily, but also politically. <gasps> oh, I see. So so because it has to do your nobility is based on. On your your wealth and also your ability to serve and the experience that you've given you can mm. work up through these ranks to, to some extent but also your ability to hold political rank is directly associated to your military ability okay um to the point where the the highest um rank in in the roman government at this time the consuls mm -hmm. they were expected to lead the consular army and if there is a battle that is big enough to warrant bringing out you know several legions of of soldiers mm -hmm. they were the, the consular legions these are the best of the best soldiers right right the the consul was expected to personally lead this battle there were two consuls at a time partially to balance out power but also partially because you might lose one of them, one of might them. Die. <laughs> I gotcha. Okay. But you won't become a consul if you haven't won battles. I see what you mean. Partly winning battles means you're a good leader. Mm -hmm. Partly it means you can literally lead an army yeah. because that's part of your duties. Yeah. Here's proof that you haven't died yet. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> also that. As good as they were on land, Rome was so bad at sea. Okay. The Romans eventually would figure out naval stuff. They kind of had to. What with being on the Mediterranean? It surprises me to hear. The Romans were a land people, like very much a land people. They just didn't do the boat thing. Is there a known reason for that? They hated them. Like, they, it's... <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I mean, if, if, if you're looking for like a very logical, clear reason, I'm not going to really be able to give you a great I'm one. I'm sure it involves There's... a lot of speculation and, and, and going back like centuries, but... One of the things that I've seen referred to is that being good at sailing, even from a, even on easy mode in the Mediterranean, right. involves a significant amount of engineering and mathematical know-how. Okay. And Roman education wasn't exactly geared toward those things. In fact, those were seen as rather effeminate. Oh, really? Um, mathematics, philosophy, all of that stuff was not really part of the core educational uh, experience of even the the most wealthy Romans. If you wanted your child to learn philosophy or or math, you would send them to Greece or you would send them to Egypt because there weren't Roman teachers. The Roman uh, education experience involved rhetoric, so you could be good at arguing in the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, and then military training because those were the things they valued as a society. So, I mean, would I'm, it, it might be ridiculous to even ask this, but would you characterize it as like a point of pride like I'm, we're so good at this specific thing that we're glad that we're not like we almost don't want to be good at sailing <laughs> I, I, I think there was certainly a, a an aspect of like that it's, it's so like contrary a, to their cultural identity <laughs> yeah i but I, I think that's more of a justification for being bad at a thing rather <laughs> well than definitely like, you, you know what i mean like there was definitely a uh you know we're, we're romans what do we need to be doing anything at sea for we're already conquering italy without it yeah, we, exactly. you know, blah 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 so that's one line of speculation i've seen 
the actual reason is probably much more complicated than that. But it, it is very much a, a, a matter of social importance. Okay. And it was holding them back up to this point. I'm just picturing now a Roman like giving a, Carth- a Carthaginian like a wedgie. <laughs> That's all I'm picturing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the Romans were bullies. The political cartoon of the era. <laughs> and they saw the Carthaginians as weak because they were so concerned with things like trade and not and and not actually going out and learning how to fight on their own right like that's that's that was so key to the roman experience that to not do that seemed just outlandish to them they didn't understand it okay problem is you need boats to get to sicily yep (laughs) and i mean they had ships they had troop transports they just Mm -hmm. weren't amazing right and it's one thing to be able to ferry troops across a very narrow strait it's another thing to actually fight at sea and carthaginians were good at fighting at sea that said, they eventually realized they have to get on the ship building grind. Like it's not, it's not an option. Generally, it looks like what they did beginning in about 261 BCE, so a couple of years into the war, mm-hmm. is they started basically copying designs of captured or shipwrecked uh, Carthaginian okay. ships. Yeah, because they just didn't know how to go about it. Really, <laughs> this guy did it. <laughs> so the ships are going to be very derivative of Carthaginian designs and operated very poorly because they're building these ships completely um, without any of the educational or cultural context that go into how to, to sail understand them. why. Yeah. They're not reverse engineering. They're just copying. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I yeah. think that's a good way to put it. They realized very quickly that they couldn't fight at sea the way that the Carthaginians did. Namely, the Carthaginians would ram other ships. That's how oh. you won naval uh, engagements at this point in time we're talking about um like triremes and quinquereems mm-hmm. which are uh these these long narrow ships that are rowed rather than sailed yeah naval because, melee units i remember <laughs> yeah yeah so they would they would just row as fast as they could and try and catch them in the side with these big brass rams and if you manage to sink it well if you're sinking in the middle of the mediterranean you're that's it yep, you're done bye the romans couldn't ram anything they just weren't good enough so they built something called a corvus okay the corvus was essentially a bridge with spikes on the end they would sail up near carthaginian (laughs) ships and they would drop this bridge that was hinged at one end on their ship (laughs) and it would bury its spikes into the carthaginian ships now they had a bridge to the other boat and guess what this is no longer a naval engagement it's yeah. a land engagement it just happens to be on some floating land in the middle <laughs> just of the brought water. the battlefield with us pretty much that was their major strategy i love that brute force strategy it's the most roman thing it i is, can't believe that in in one invention in one tactic it is such a good encapsulation of the roman mentality at this point in time we, we can't do that we'll make them do our thing yeah they don't give up. They never give up. It's admirable in one way, and it's really frustrating in it's another. It's so bullheaded. I love it. <laughs> in general, this war is a naval one. I mean, there's lots of uh, engagements on uh, Sicily itself, but you get to a point where the Romans can't really get that many more troops to Sicily, mm-hmm. and the Carthaginian navy is so tied up trying to counter these very frustrating Roman raids that they can't really get a lot of a lot more troops to Sicily either. Okay, and so they're just kind of sailing around each other in circles. They can't Pop quite. Shots. Yeah, I mean, in this in this era, you can't really blockade a port the way that you would be able to uh, later on in history. You just had to hope that when you saw the ships, you could sail out and ram them or put spike bridges in them (laughs) as quickly as possible that was about the best you could do have a pitched field battle (laughs) 
The Romans attempted a landing force in Africa to end the war sooner, but they were they were driven back by the Carthaginian navy. And a fleet carrying the entire expeditionary force uh, was actually caught in a storm. Um, all hands were lost. Estimates put casualties at more than 90,000 men wow. in one day, in one storm. Bad storm. 270 ships were sunk. It was known as Camarina uh, in 255 BCE. Um, it killed far more people than anything else in the war in, again, one day. Yep. Sailing may have been easy mode. The Romans were very bad at it, and this is the kind of thing that can just happen at sea 2,500 years ago. Yeah, sure. Just a big storm kills yeah. 90,000 people. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's devastating. Roman victory on land in Sicily started kind of looking inevitable. The amount of funding alone that the Romans were putting into this war, again, mm-hmm. with all this like private backing. They'll never stop. <laughs> The Carthaginians could not match it. Mm-hmm. The The people bankrolling this, well, the, the government, um, were looking at this as basically a lost cause. Why are we still fighting this thing? Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to take the land anyway, and we're burning so much money. Let's cut our losses and, and call it a day. Right. The Romans were taking Carthaginian cities, or Carthaginian-held cities on Sicily one by one. It was getting to be too much, and um, Carthage just got exhausted. They were ready for peace. There was a faction within the government, though, that decided that maybe like one last ditch effort to at least minimize the amount of of uh, reparations they would have to make was worth the effort. Okay, and they sent a, a general uh, named Hamilcar, uh, Hamilcar Barca, uh, to Sicily to try and drive back the the Roman forces. And he actually managed to fight the Romans to a stalemate. He managed to push them back somewhat, which was impressive, miraculous considering the uh, the situation. But in response, Rome just built another fleet to uh, replace the one that had been destroyed. They just built another fleet again. It, it kind of, in certain ways, reminds me of um, American response after Pearl Harbor, where they just built another fleet yep. in a matter of months, less than two years, and all of a sudden had the biggest and greatest navy in the world. <laughs> just and replaced it. Like, oh, okay. Oops. Well, guess that's something you could pull off when you have enough willpower and money and manufacturing. Yep. Anyways, um, <laughs> the fleet sails out and engages the the Carthaginian navy at uh, the Battle of Agates Islands and manages to defeat them fairly decisively. And by 241, Carthage was unable to build another fleet economically. They were out of it. They were out of the fight. Yep. They had no money to hire more mercenaries. They had no money to bu- build more ships. And uh, Hamilcar was forced to sue for peace. Let's take a break there, and sure. when we come back, we'll talk about some, sort of some of the ramifications of the, the first Punic War and uh, move on from there. Sounds good. Back on HI101 here with Kevin Miller. Hey. And Rome just won the first Punic War. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, Carthage, at this point, is thinking, okay. Well, we know how this goes. We were talking about this whole like rules of war thing, right? Like, sure. The way things go after you lose a war, are, like pretty standard here too. It's like, okay, well, uh, we'll make a certain amount of payments for a certain amount of years, and we'll call it a day. It's fine. Mm-hmm. We can rebuild. And Rome's like, nope, we beat you. We want, we want lots of stuff. <laughs> Be defeated, <laughs> basically. And and Carthage is kind of like, what are you, what are you talking about? They're like, we, we want it, we want it, we want lots of payments. 
Uh, we want <laughs> all prisoners returned. No ransom. We're not paying ransom for them. Mm-hmm. We'll return your prisoners if you want to pay ransom. <laughs> we got you over a barrel here. And Carthage is like, are you are you kidding me? Like, okay, I guess. Like, <laughs> give me it. <laughs> I, I I don't have a choice here, I suppose. But all, all right, guys, this seems a little seems a little unnecessary. War's over. <laughs> And it's like Rome's just like basking in the fact that they just defeated what's arguably the biggest empire in the Mediterranean at this point in time. Okay. On one hand, you kind of can't blame them. On the other hand, it's like, guys, just <laughs> tone it down a little. Yeah, they're kicking someone when they're down. It's a real d- move. <laughs> a little bit. Carthage is also forced to withdraw completely from Sicily and surrender a bunch of like surrounding smaller islands. Okay. Um, there's there's a few little kind of inconsequential basically islands on the you know between sicily and tunisia now okay um that they were forced to give up so that romans could put outposts there basically and the amount of money that they asked for from the it was significant unprecedented it it was a lot of money (laughs) carthage was not able to pay this money very well now they had a decision to make at this point which was what do we do with our budget yeah right and the thing about losing a war and running out of money when you operate your own military mm-hmm. is you just tell your soldiers, sorry, we're not paying you. Yeah. And they're mad at you, but they're citizens and they're not really going to do anything. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, there might be an uprising, <laughs> yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. But like, you know, they're, they're still citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, they you can promise them payment over a certain amount of time etc etc sure when you've hired a whole bunch of mercenaries yeah and you go to them and you say hey we're paying you a percentage of what we actually agreed on because we don't have the money for you to do the thing that you agreed to do for us and definitely did yeah they don't take kindly to that oh why would they (laughs) This kindles what's known as the Mercenary War. Oh. <laughs> wonder where you can get that, that name from. It goes pretty badly for Carthage. Yes. <laughs> On the brink of, of a defeat, <laughs> they are defeated once again, I'm yep. assuming, <laughs> by their own soldiers at this point, basically. Well, they're not. Carthage manages to win it, but they managed to win it by hiring even more mercenaries, oh. <laughs> basically on credit at this Ooh. point. And so they've lost a bunch of money to rome they've lost a bunch more money to these other mercenaries that they have fighting their previous mercenaries mercenaries. (laughs) who did get paid somewhat just not enough oh god it's bad this is like when you have mice so let's put some snakes in the house and then how do we get rid of the snakes (laughs) yeah you're not far (laughs) off obviously this puts them at further monetary hardship (laughs) they lose some territory in the in the deal um these are Numidian uh, mercenaries, remember, and they've been looking for any chance that they can get to eat away at Carthage's territory. Oh, sure. That used to be their territory. Here's one on a silver platter. Yeah, pretty much. And so Rome basically takes this opportunity <laughs> to kick them a little bit harder. Hey, we're still here too. <laughs> Here's the thing. The agreement that Hamilcar made with the military commanders in Sicily had a provision in there that the Roman assembly had to agree to those terms as well, because they are technically a republic and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. (laughs) The assembly rejects the terms and asks for even more money. (laughs) They refuse to ratify the, 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 the agreement as it stood. And Carthage couldn't do anything about it. 
No, what could you do? Oh, no, of course not. They, they had nothing. Third war? <laughs> right? Like, there's nothing else they could do. With what mercenaries? <laughs> oh, and by the way, Rome wants um, Corsica and Sardinia in the deal as well. Well, I mean, take them, I guess. What am I going to say? This is exactly what happens. <laughs> they yeah. have nothing else. They've got nothing else. And so Carthage is in a rough spot here. They've lost control of their shipping lanes, mm-hmm. which in the Mediterranean means that you are very vulnerable to pirates. Mm-hmm. The Barbary Coast, uh, pirates have been coming from the Barbary Coast forever. Uh, they were very active in the Mediterranean at this time. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it. And and so that eats into their revenues as well. Uh, they're having basically their entire GDP garnished by the Romans. Yeah, so not only do costs keep going up, but income keeps going down. <laughs> exactly. And they go, okay, how are we going to pay for all of this? Attacking Rome isn't an option right now no. because we don't have the military for it. And they've gotten very good at fighting. So, uh-oh, we've got to find more revenue. And so they turn their eyes to the Iberian Peninsula. In this time period, what is now Spain was very, very well known for abundant silver mines. Okay. They were very rich with silver. And while the Carthaginians had some relationships with people in that area, Mm -hmm. there wasn't actually any Carthaginian territory to speak of in the Iberian Peninsula. And so they went, well, um, why don't we just capture the literal source of wealth and use that to help pay things down? So, but what if there was? <laughs> um, Hamilcar takes a, a, a military force uh, in 237 BCE to invade Iberia and managed to conquer a pretty decent amount of territory. Now, the Romans don't care about this this place at this point in time. It's kind of far away from yeah, right. Rome itself and... Oh, well, the only people who are there are Iberian natives, and who cares about them, basically? And so for a few years, this actually works out pretty well. And it works out especially well for for Hamilcar, because the amount of wealth coming out of this area and the amount of military power concentrated in this area gives him a level of influence that wasn't necessarily Uh, intended by the Carthaginians when they sent him to capture this. Not that there was any sort of like literal revolt that happened or anything like that but the uh, just sheer amount of power that hamilcar uh was presiding over made him a very important person he's like the sole breadwinner for the empire <laughs> basically yeah. and and this area becomes known as like the barkian empire mm-hmm. like oh <laughs> it wasn't and i mean that's kind of a you know something we're putting on it now in, in reverse <laughs> and it wasn't technically um independent but the thing is there were like pro-Barkian and anti-Barkian factions within the Carthaginian uh, government. That's how much power he was wielding at this point in time. Um, Significantly uh, influential. Um, And it's all about this wealth. Right. So they're paying off Rome now, which is great. They're Mm -hmm. finally kind of getting back to a spot where they can both pay their war indemnities and pay their bills. Yeah, they're out of the red. (laughs) Yeah. And everything's going really, really well for a while. For a while. Hamilcar was killed in battle in 228 BCE with these Siberian natives. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yep. Commanders were very, very hands-on in this era. Um, sometimes they got killed. His son-in-law, uh, Hasdrubal, became commander. And Hasdrubal was a little more ambitious than Hamilcar had been. Okay. Hamilcar was an ambitious man, and he was a, he was a skilled commander. But 
once he was at a point where he was controlling a significant portion of the silver mines, he was content to, you know, that, that was his directive, right? Like that was, that was, he had had accomplished his mission. Now he just had to uh, consolidate and defend that, that territory and that wealth. It was all about getting the wealth train back on track. Mm He did that. And it was now just a matter of maintaining that. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Hamilcar thought, why not more? Hasdrubal. Sorry, Hasdrubal. Thank you. He began... Hamilcar's ghost. <laughs> uh, Hasdrubal began making overtures with the um, some some uh, Gallic tribes, specifically the Celts. Okay. Um, basically saying, hey, um, here y'all are having some problems with the Romans. <laughs> there was a pretty significant Celtic faction that lived in a region that generally gets called Cisalpine Gaul. Okay. Cisalpine Gaul is this region between the Po River. Remember, the, the mm-hmm. Romans had gotten as far north as the Po River right. and the Alps themselves. Cisalpine okay. means the, the near side of the Alpines okay. or the Alps. Um, and Gaul is just sort of what they called everything north of Rome, basically. Okay, between the so, river and the mountains. Well, yeah, and, but no, it, it was much further than that. Oh, okay. it, Gaul is what they would call basically all of France and Germany. Okay. Yes. Um, it's, it's very much a catch-all of and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, Cisalpine Gaul was referring specifically to the part of Gaul that was between the Alps and the Po River. Yes, that's what I... Yeah. Okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. Got it. <laughs> all on the same page. Yeah. All good. So the, uh, the Celts in this region, they were very uncomfortable with the amount of military power that the Romans had consolidated because a lot of it had been consolidated at their expense. Of course. Understandable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Hasdrubal, meanwhile, thought, you know, hey, these guys gave us a really hard time. If we can kind of conduct a proxy war by supporting these Celts to some extent against Rome, that'll only help our cause. As long as we don't get caught. <laughs> No one can ever know. <laughs> the Romans get word of the alliance. <laughs> uh, they discovered that the Celts were massing troops to invade the Italian peninsula, and they decided, you know what, this entire region is a liability to us. Mm-hmm. Um, they were well aware that the people there were unhappy with Roman rule, and they went, well, what's a better northern border? Uh, this river... Or the entire Alps. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? Yeah, of course. And so in 225, they uh, they launch a, a military campaign into the region. And over the course of about five years or so, they manage to subdue the, the natives and annex the Salpine Gaul into Rome proper. Mm-hmm. In 221, Hasdrubal is also killed. This time he's assassinated by the slave of a Celtic king that Hasdrubal had defeated in battle. Oh, okay. There's something very poetic about there that is. one. Yeah, that seems like it'd be an interesting uh, like folktale. <laughs> Avenge my master, etc., etc. Yeah, of course. At this point, command in Iberia had gotten a little bit fuzzy. I mean, Hasdrubal was clearly like the next option after uh, Hamilcar, mm-hmm. but there wasn't much of a succession plan uh, coming after that. They decide to kind of keep it in uh, in the family, and command moves to Hamilcar's son, uh, Hannibal, Hannibal Barca. Hasdrubal's son? Nope, Hannibal's son. Okay. Hasdrubal had been ha- uh, Hamilcar's... I know they all sound the exact same. Hasdrubal had been Hamilcar's son-in-law. Oh, oh okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hannibal is Hamilcar's actual son. Got it. Legends say that Hamilcar had basically 
taught his sons from the time they were very, very small children that they needed to become enemies of Rome and to never stop until Rome was defeated. Okay. This was a Roman legend. The truth of it is not necessarily airtight. Yeah, something to tell Roman children in their bed. <laughs> that being said, it will match up with his actions moving forward. Oh, okay. So, well. um, in 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 substance or or in style at least, it's it's certainly uh, accurate enough for our purposes. All right. Hannibal decides that his best move is is fortifying the entire Iberian Peninsula up to the Pyrenees Mountains. Mm-hmm. It's the mountain range that runs between Spain, Spain and France today. Okay. There's a bit of a problem there. And it's a city called Saguntum. It's this little Greek city-state on the eastern coast of Spain, um, so south of France. Saguntum had a special relationship with Rome. They were trading partners going back quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And there was sort of a an agreement, um, a defensive treaty, if you will. Um, basically, Rome had offered to fight anybody who comes anywhere near Saguntum. There was a specific river no one was allowed to cross under military uh, or under arms. Okay. And Hannibal violated that uh, on his way to consolidate the entire peninsula. The whole thing spiraled out of control. Uh, Hannibal decided to put the city under siege and actually just take it because it was turning out to be so much trouble for him. Right. Um, Rome initially declined to send support, which was extremely... Really? I mean, they were in the middle of a war with uh, the Celts in Cisalpine Gaul. Mm. This is across an ocean, which they're not great at, or a sea at least. But, you know, it's tough. <laughs> Rome's, Rome's super gung-ho unless you're all the way over there. <laughs> well, the, the the other question there is, do they want to risk another conflict with, uh, with Carthage over this teeny tiny city-state that, sure, they've promised to protect, but... Yeah. Are they going to last long enough to call us on our bull? Yeah, maybe, maybe a few years ago, but maybe not so much now. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Saguntum internally became very like polarized over what to do next. Rome's refusing to help. Carthage is trying to sack them. Sounds like Sicily all over again. <laughs> Where do you go from here? Right. Um, the pro-Roman faction ends up winning out. They actually ended up rounding up and uh, executing all Carthaginian supporters oh. in the city. Well, that'll do it. You know, they're already under siege. What are they going to do? Put them more under siege? Yeah. You know, yeah, it means no mercy when they finally get through the walls, but this is a siege. There's never any mercy once they get through the walls. Oh, no. Rome decided that uh, after the city fell would be a really good time to go in and support Saguntum. So they waited until the city fell. Oh, okay. Hannibal took it. Rome went, hey, you can't take our city. Hey, wait. <laughs> Part of the reason... I know I know Rome seems very fickle in this time period. Part of the reason that you run into very um, sort of wildly swinging military policies from Rome is that the consuls were actually elected on a yearly basis. Uh, so okay. you have a new uh, set of leaders every single year. It makes for some wildly different motivations. <laughs> yeah, it makes for some swings in, in leadership that um, you wouldn't normally expect, especially in an era where a lot of the leaders are, are hereditary and are, you know, looking after things for a couple of decades at a time instead of 12 months. Yeah. Rome declares war. And this is now officially the start of the Second Punic War. Hannibal knew once the city fell and once Rome reacted badly that his time in Iberia was probably limited it probably wouldn't be that long until rome sent an expeditionary force 
to take Spain, specifically because, you know, they'll probably also go to Africa, but Spain is where they're getting all their money. And that's what ended the war last time. Right. Between the, that and the fact that he was the one who incited the incident. <laughs> specifically. Um, of course, they've got his number, right? Like, of, yeah. of course, they're coming for him. So at this point, Rome is scarier <laughs> like they're they're whereas before they were another empire in the neighborhood and you know weren't super remarkable in one way mm. or another other than you know they were particularly good at um like land encounters mm-hmm. um now they have you know over these intervening decades have grown in some power and influence in the region uh, somewhat i mean mainly what they've done is consolidated power in in their corner of the neighborhood like okay. in their neck of the woods um there's been some minor conflicts with um you know former greek states and things like that okay. but you know they don't even own all of sicily at this point in time right like syracuse is still yeah. a, an independent city state there's a bit of growing to do there um that being said Carthage has diminished significantly. So when we're talking about relative power, then yeah, the Romans are a lot scarier than they were during the first Punic War. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hannibal has been using all of these ensuing years to cultivate a very loyal uh, military, which is mostly drawn from or largely drawn from Iberian natives, but also includes a lot of Numidian uh, mercenaries that were brought along during the invasions. And basically, as they lose troops, they kind of rotate in more troops and slowly grow things. Uh, Bands who are considered uh, especially loyal or especially effective are Mm -hmm. given higher uh, priority. he's, He's grown a mature army out of what used to be a bunch of bands of mercenaries. And there's quite a few of them. I mean, He started off with nearly 120,000 troops in Spain. He's going to leave a bunch of them behind to guard Iberia. Of course, you have to. He ends up taking about 90,000 of them uh, north with about 12,000 cavalry to secure the Pyrenees. So he gets to the Pyrenees and then he leaves a bunch of them uh, at that border to guard Spain from the north and sets out for Rome. Uh, inland, actually, rather than taking the coast because he found the coast too vulnerable. And uh, the army he goes with is about 50,000 foot soldiers, 9,000 cavalry. Wow. He's got uh, 37 war elephants. Um, war elephants are a big deal. Have you ever seen an elephant in person, like very close? Uh, not very close, no. It's kind of hard to describe how big they are. <laughs> and like, that's with us being able to like see them on TV and in books and things like that and have a sense of like, oh, these are going to be big. And sure, the reality of it is a little bit startling. No, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you have an idea of how big they are. But then when you get next to one, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like the biggest thing that you've ever seen is like, I don't know, maybe an ox, maybe something bigger than that. I've been close to a rhino. (laughs) I'm talking about the Romans, though. Yeah, no. (laughs) You you get to that point, and all of a sudden, a war elephant comes along? Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. What is this? (laughs) They would strap spikes to their tusks. They would basically drive them into a frenzy and then have them charge through uh, the the ranks of troops. Oh, sure. Which are all bunched together very closely. That'll row, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. If you don't get directly run over by these things, (laughs) you are running away. Yes. (laughs) Like, that is a given. He sets off into Gaul. Um, He's going to go through the mainland and he's going to swing down into Italy. That's his plan. The Romans, meanwhile, do exactly what Hannibal was expecting and send uh, an invasion force straight to Iberia. 
So they are going to do, like I said, exactly what he expected, Mm -hmm. try and cut off funding Mm -hmm. and go from there. When the Romans get there, uh, the Carthaginian troops were avoiding pitched battle like the plague. And this really frustrated the Romans who were basically like, what are you doing? We're here to fight. Fight us. Mm -hmm. Fight us, please. We we want to fight. Fighting is what we do. (laughs) This was probably very smart of the Carthaginians. Um, Hannibal had left uh, his nephew, Hanno, in uh, in command of Iberia, along with his brother, who was also named Hasdrubal. Oh, amazing. It's a very common name in, in Carthage at this point in time. So this is a different Hasdrubal than before. Oh, sure, rolls off the tongue. He had a brother and a brother-in-law named Hasdrubal. So we'll do our best to keep those straight. The, the Mike of the era. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um. Roman inaction at Saguntum when they were first attacked had made the locals extremely skeptical of Roman help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> On account of they were given none. Pretty much. The Romans slowly began to win back support, mainly by helping to take these places back from the fleeing Carthaginians and then turning over command to the locals and leaving them alone. Oh, okay. That was like yeah. all they could really do here. <laughs> we're sorry. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Mia culpa. Yeah. We're, we're here now. We'll do better, I guess. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. As the Romans managed to solidify support, Hanno got a little bit twitchy about the whole thing. And he kind of decided that the Romans were only going to continue getting more powerful in the region and that he had to act decisively and quickly. Okay. And rashly, I'm assuming. Yes. <laughs> he was outnumbered by the Romans two to one. Okay. Nevertheless, he decided not to wait for Hasdrubal and charged out to meet the Ooh. Roman troops at the Battle of Sissa. It didn't go well. Bye. Yeah, they got <laughs> smashed up pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, Hasdrubal, meanwhile, knowing that all of this was going on, decided to turn his attention where the Romans weren't and went after the fleet that had brought the army there. Okay. Which is a smart move. Mm-hmm. Except that the Romans were still just kind of brute forcing their way through naval uh, in, uh, engagements fairly effectively. So it didn't hinder them as much as they might have hoped for. <laughs> it certainly tied them up, but the Carthaginians lost like three quarters of their oh. fleet in the process. <laughs> so now they couldn't reinforce Hannibal by sea, which was the original plan. Hasdrubal was going to sail a couple oh, no. tens of thousands of people around, <laughs> land them on the coast of, uh, of Italy. Yeah. So now Hannibal's on his own. It's all falling apart. <laughs> In 218, Hannibal crosses the Alps. This the only is, thing I knew about this subject. <laughs> here, here's, uh, let's, let's talk about the Alps crossing a little bit. Okay. There is no surprise whatsoever in the fact that he was going to cross the Alps. Everyone expected him to cross the Alps. That's I'm, the only way into Italy. I'm sure in practice it's not that simple. <laughs> well, what was notable about it was that it was much earlier than any was, anyone was expecting because by the time he got there, it was late autumn already. Okay. In the ancient world, warfare basically took the winter off because... It hits everyone. <laughs> yeah, how do you fight in the winter? <laughs> Everybody's wearing sandals. <laughs> Ain't got no boots. <laughs> and especially going through... And, and I mean, that's that's in like the Mediterranean climate yeah. where winters are... Mild. Yeah, but relatively, relatively speaking, quite mild. It's still not conducive to fighting, but, you know, everyone still takes it off. Climbing through the Alps was a massive logistic undertaking. That's what's remarkable about it, especially at that point in the year. Mm -hmm. 
That guy took 37 elephants with elephants through the Alps. <laughs> he tried to bring siege engines through the Alps. He had to secure the allegiances of mountain tribes the entire way through to keep them from being ambushed as he crossed through the Alps. He had to send advanced uh, scouts through the Alps to basically secure the uh, the help of these Celtic tribes who had been subjugated by the Romans so that they wouldn't just pick them off one by one as they came down out oh, of the Alps. Easily, I'm sure. Quite easily. Yeah. The, the crossing of the Alps is a relatively speaking gentle slope up from the north and then a very steep slope down to oh, the south. Oh, I see. And it's not easygoing. Jeez, so he invented snow tires. Essentially. Um, the Romans weren't expecting him until like minimum the next spring. And so that gave him a chance to get all of these forces across the Alps and into Cisalpine Gaul, which was considered safe territory. Mm -hmm. And winter in this region that's very fertile, like lots of food, very good wintering, and put the Romans on the defensive because they no longer have mountains in between themselves and Hannibal's forces. It's a full like half year before you're expecting them. Yeah. And if your elected officials are only in office for a year, yeah. they're like, oh, it's someone else's problem. Oh no, it's my problem. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, they're, they're stuck with it. He managed to get 28,000 infantrymen through the Alps. He got 6,000 cavalry wow. and 30 of his elephants made it through. Wow, really? None of his siege engines made it. No. <laughs> but he got 30 elephants through the Alps. Yeah, your living siege engines. <laughs> yeah. So nobody's entirely sure. Like it's to this day argued where exactly he crossed, like oh, what, what the exact route is that he took. It's one of those things that people love to argue about ad infinitum and barring some amazing discovery we'll probably never really know for sure i love when you find that there is something that you can use to track that like the yeah. lewis and clark expedition oh yeah no it's very interesting stuff yeah. um but yeah even even with lewis and clark it was already so well documented yeah um the the you're, you're referring to the mercury i'm right? referring to the mercury yeah, yeah um people were taking for uh for uh digestive complaints for everything <laughs> um yeah no you could track exactly where they stopped and made camp by these deposits of mercury it's interesting stuff yeah the alps don't tend to hold evidence very well no weather blasted for hundreds of years <laughs> yeah exactly um you know it was a slightly gentler crossing than like lord of the rings style hanging onto the side of a mountain <laughs> but you understand that that's what i'm picturing <laughs> i that's exactly why i brought it up in the first place miller <laughs> Why else would I mention it? Because I'm picturing like Roman wizards. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. There's valleys through and whatnot, but you know, it's it's still treacherous going, and it was considered more a, a more a logistical feat than it was necessarily like an amazing military uh um decision. It wasn't whether or not he could do it, it was how he pulled it off. Well yeah, and, and pulled it off in a way that no one could have foreseen. <laughs> yeah. The force landing in Cisalpine Gaul so quickly had the very beneficial effect of essentially ending any Roman uh, plans to attack Carthage directly. There were plans to put together an army, sail to Africa, and lay siege to Carthage, Mm -hmm. um, basically hold it ransom against Hannibal, which would have been effective if Hannibal hadn't landed on their doorstep if they had time to do it <laughs> months before they were expecting <laughs> right. then things get really bad for the romans we'll start with the battle of trebia 
the Roman army marches north uh, in the spring to meet uh, Hannibal, who's had several months to rest in Cisalpine Gaul, mm-hmm. make some alliances, replace a few of his soldiers with locals who are Felt very upset with the Romans. Mountain tribes that they passed on the way. <laughs> and they meet the Carthaginians in battle. This is where Hannibal's brilliance and command starts showing up. He's very good at playing the Romans uh, in the exact sorts of ways that the Romans will fall for like every time. And find most inferior. <laughs> he parked his forces. Hmm. The Romans were camped out on the banks of a river. Okay. And very, very early in the morning, he uh, Hannibal got his troops lined up ready for battle on the far side of the river. Okay. Early enough that the Roman camp hadn't actually had a chance to break for the morning. Oh. And they scrambled. The Roman troops didn't get a chance to eat breakfast, which sounds like a small thing, but like... No, that's a big thing. It's a big thing. When you're doing something as physically taxing as physical combat. <laughs> a, a giant shoving match between two massive walls of shields. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, then... Seeing the Carthaginians just sitting there waiting, the Romans got all hyped, ready to go. Uh And their commanders ordered them to charge, which involved crossing a river (laughs) in the spring. Mm -hmm. They were cold. (laughs) Uh They were wet. They were tired. Marshy. (laughs) And the Carthaginians were just sitting there fresh, full bellies, waiting, ready to go. (laughs) Come at me. (laughs) The Roman force consisted of 40,000 troops. Remember the 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 Carthaginians are still sitting at you know a little over thirty thousand. Only twenty thousand of the Romans managed to retreat to safety. Wow! The rest were either killed or captured by the Carthaginians. And this is in a, a battle system where like low casualties are expected. <laughs> yes, twenty thousand or so Romans killed or captured. At most, five thousand Carthaginians killed. Wow! They took very low casualties. Yes, they did. Romans aren't used to losing. No, it gets their blood iron on. It gets them fired up. They hate it. (laughs) They don't like it. It turns out they're really not fans. They like the winning part. I'm just going back to Klingons again. (laughs) They didn't really know what to do with themselves at this point. Um, It was extremely distressing, not just for leadership, but just like for the Roman people. (laughs) They had built so much of an identity on their military prowess and specifically their military record that they kind of didn't know what to do beat at home (laughs) badly so very badly so they withdrew they 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 withdrew (laughs) so they withdrew out of cisalpine gaul altogether basically (laughs) went we need to circle the wagons and they wouldn't actually take the territory back until after the war giving him uh giving hannibal free reign of it Mm -hmm. so is that more uh uh a result of the shock like do, do you think that they could have and they just were so flabbergasted that they just didn't rally i mean i mean we're speculating obviously but forty thousand troops is a full consular army mm-hmm. that is the biggest force that they were feeling at this point in time i just realized i made a mistake they actually this this battle was in the fall it was, so uh hamil uh hannibal hadn't had a chance to winter this was as soon as he crossed the alps mm-hmm. in the autumn oh I they see. went after him right away so, so my mistake there. <laughs> yeah yeah hold off on that email you're about to write me everybody <laughs> um them withdrawing out of cisalpine gaul gave uh hannibal the the opportunity to winter 
uh, unmolested. Okay, I gotcha. And rebuilt his army. After the, um, I would say, decisive defeat of the Roman army, um, Hannibal had a lot less trouble convincing locals to come fight for him. Uh. He managed to rebuild his army up to 60,000 or so. Mm -hmm. He had just done that with half as many people. Because this is in a region, this... uh sorry cisalpine gaul that's correct uh where they had just like the romans had very recently conquered it themselves yeah within the past decade so i'm sure there's a lot of like hey you know what let's fight back and we'll join the people who are fighting back yeah and there were also uh roman towns who were basically going like oh hey (laughs) hello new bosses okay so happy lord so so happy to work for you (laughs) can i just give you things basically which is in this period of time a very valid strategy for yeah. survival can i not die please uh, sometimes it's the only strategy oh, for sure in the spring of 217 hannibal sets out he actually he actually lost the last of his elephants around now in the marshy terrain elephants and marshes don't go well together um so he's not actually going to have any more elephants or siege engines at this point he's going to be exclusively uh, an army of infantry and cavalry mm-hmm. which he's used very effectively in the field right problem is it's really hard to lay an effective siege without some sort of siege engines in this era people have walls right and they have fairly effective walls um and that's going to be a major hindrance on hannibal's campaign in general so instead he sets out ravaging the countryside collecting supplies for himself Mm -hmm. terrorizing the locals raising more troops getting more towns to basically surrender to him uh while rome is going like i we we gotta do something (laughs) about this scraping together another army right which they had set out towards where hannibal's troops were they they raised another thirty thousand men and sent them off they met at a place called lake tresamine and (laughs) hannibal was not necessarily of the opinion that lining up all of your troops in a battlefield was always the best option for winning okay he was okay with winning battles on his own terms which the romans were absolutely incensed about they thought it was barbaric that somebody wouldn't play by the normal rules yeah but it worked well sure when you're the best at the rules (laughs) they set out a small the the carthaginians set out a small kind of skirmishing force to draw out the roman troops and they were so riled after the last lost battle Mm -hmm. that they were like so pumped and ready to go that they basically chased this small bait force yeah and were not lined up battle ready. Uh, okay. Hannibal had his entire army wait, waiting over oh a my hill. God. <laughs> so there's this lake. Mm-hmm. The north shore of it, the Carthaginians were the, the, the scouting troop was running from the uh the Roman army from east to west along the shore of this lake. Mm-hmm. Over a hill to the north, mm-hmm. the like Hannibal's entire army was yeah, waiting. This massive force. So as the Roman army rushed through between the lake mm-hmm. and the Carthaginian troops, okay, <laughs> they basically came up over the hills mm-hmm. in battle formation, ready to fight, and they pinned the entire army against the lake. They had nowhere to retreat to. Nope. Fifteen thousand men were killed in this battle. Fifteen thousand Romans. Uh, the other 15,000 were captured as prisoners. Wow. I'm sure some tried to swim the lake. Yeah. Unsuccessfully. <laughs> I would imagine so. It yeah. is a very big lake. Um, 
it's not a winning strategy, especially once you're tired from fighting and are wearing armor. Uh-huh. Besides, the Romans weren't really ones for retreating in general. I mean, they'll, they'll do it when they have to, but... But also not one for water. That too. <laughs> absolutely. No, it's, 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 yeah, absolutely a factor. The consul that led this battle was also killed in the fighting. That's two very, very big battles in the course of less than a year with a lot and of casualties yep. and a lot of prisoners. Mm-hmm. And again, the Carthaginians took very, very few casualties in this engagement. Again, they the fact that they managed to catch the Romans out of battle formation was basically game over. Yeah. There's very little that you as an individual can do against a properly formed shield wall, mm-hmm. um, which the Carthaginians had. Um a properly formed shield wall against another shield wall that's a different story they had a system for that that was not the system that they were set up to fight this uh this particular battle in no so yeah they had uh they had both flanks pinned they had cavalry mopping up it was it was bad yeah it's a game changer when you can catch the romans and they're not ready for a fight (laughs) a lot of hannibal's advisors at this point suggest that he at this point set siege to rome itself wow it was time. I mean, they killed tens of thousands yeah, of Roman sure. soldiers. How many more could they possibly have? Mm-hmm. Um, problem is, Hannibal doesn't have any siege, siege engines. Yeah. So he decided to set south for regions of Italy where they had really only recently become quote-unquote Roman. There was still a lot of very strong uh, identity um dating back to their pre-Roman times, which was only a few decades before. Mm -hmm. And he decided he was going to try and win allies there among those people. The Romans, because this is considered an emergency, um, elected a dictator. This is a thing that the the Roman Senate would do from time to time in in cases of of dire emergency. Mm -hmm. Basically, they would appoint one leader rather than the normal two and basically give him a set period of time in this case six months and say you can do whatever you want you have ultimate power fix this for us and then relinquish that power (laughs) yes they appoint um emperor palpatine (laughs) they appoint quintus fabius maximus as their dictator okay and fabius does something that is probably the most bold thing a roman has done in a very long time interesting he says we're not gonna fight them He's looks he's looking at this situation and he's going every time we meet them in battle mm-hmm. they destroy us. We can't just keep bringing up fresh troops who are untested in battle, keep giving them military experience by feeding them all this green wood and expect this to go well for us. He can't touch us in the cities. We have to accept some losses out in the countrysides and rally. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't working. This is known as the Fabian strategy. You'll I've, sometimes hear that, of that referenced yeah. in, in places. It's this idea of, of um, sort of uh, refusing to engage as a, uh, a strategy for dealing with some sort of challenge or threat. Um, it comes specifically from this uh, attempt to not exactly placate the, the Carthaginians, but to give the Romans enough time to rebuild something resembling a proper army again. Mm-hmm. He was intensely unpopular i can imagine why people hated this this is this very old like roman sense of um military honor Mm -hmm. coming through and 
people are calling him a coward. He's given a, uh, people call him the delayer. That's the, you know, he's, he's referred to more as the delayer than his own name in this period of time. People hate it. And he's going, I'm still dictator. I'm still saying, do not fight that man. We're going to lose. Mm -hmm. We have to figure this out. He continues to harass the Carthaginian troops during this time, however. So he's sending out like little small skirmish groups. It's mainly very mobile mounted warriors and some like very um, lightly armored uh, uh, fighters who would be like engaging with javelins rather than like a a proper shield wall. So Mm -hmm. they're going to be harassing uh, Carthaginian scouts mainly uh, while being protected by these quick cavalry units. Just keep wearing them down. Don't make it too easy for them. Anywhere yep. that they pop up, bring these really mobile, really small groups and keep them from taking it too easily. Continue inflicting casualties. They can't keep this up forever. Mm-hmm. We have an entire Roman population to draw from. They have their men that they have right now. Yeah. Uh, as long as we can continue to contain them, they, like by definition, will continue to, to shrink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the Fabian strategy. Uh, indirect engagement and um, regrouping your resources. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, like American Revolutionary War <laughs> tactics. A little bit. Kind of. Uh, in certain ways, yeah. I mean, a lot of those commanders were, you know, uh, huge uh, admirers of the Roman uh, oh, yeah. commanders okay, as well. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they were taking some inspiration. That makes from a lot there. of sense. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, but no, there, there is a, par- a part of that. He also exchanged prisoners with the Carthaginians. And because there were a lot more Roman prisoners mm-hmm. than Carthaginian prisoners, the Carthaginians expected ransom for everyone who wasn't a one-to-one trade. Fabian paid for every single one of those extra prisoners out of his own pocket. Wow. He said, we need experienced soldiers back. I don't care if we're giving back Carthaginian soldiers. Yeah. It's worth the price. His personal lands had not been ravaged by these marauders. Oh, okay. And he said, basically, this is the least I can do for my country everything i have <laughs> people still hated him yep <laughs> and because of that when his time ran out in 216 two new consuls were elected uh, gaius Trentius varro and lucius Aemilius paulus and it basically ran on the p- platform of we're not fabian and it worked very very well and they said we're going to take the fight to hannibal and i think this is a really good place to take a break <laughs> um because things are about to get wild yeah yeah we'll do that next time though so uh yeah we'll stop there and next time the romans are going to try the direct approach again and we'll see how well it goes for a quick six month nap (laughs) yeah uh not well i can i can tell you that now spoilers the romans of the third century weren't used to losing on the battlefield but they had never met a commander like hannibal barca Their normal approach wasn't working, but until they figure out what else to do, things are about to get much worse before they get better. Next time on HI 101, the Romans are going to suffer one of the largest military defeats in history before finally turning the tide of the Second Punic War. That episode will be up on June 15th. Since HI 101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. 
You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.